0: The L in the TULIP acronym stands for Limited Atonement. So let me do my best to define. Of course, if there's any questions, raise your hand. This is an open forum. I I want questions. If you don't understand, I will do my best at least to to try to um, give an answer. But from looking into it, this this is what I come to find. You might hear it defined different ways. You might hear... Uh, somebody talk about definite atonement or actual atonement or particular atonement. Uh, most people that profess to this don't like that word limited because it sounds like it's power. It, it's less powerful, right? Like it's limited in its power. And that's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about that the blood of Christ can't save anybody. It's not powerful enough to save anybody. It's not what it's talking about. So they have changed it to, to, to these kind of Um, descriptors, definite, actual, particular, which I think you begin to see what this doctrine is pointing at. And it's usually, um, described by this statement here, the death of Christ was sufficient for all, but effective for some. It was sufficient for all, but effective for some. Doesn't sound too bad at first. I might even agree with that if I read it too fast. <laughs> sufficient for all, sure. Effective for some, sure. But they're going to define this effectiveness different than me. I believe the blood of Christ is sufficient to save anybody who comes to Him, yeah. right? Why? John three sixteen. There's a reason that's quoted so much. It's a reason that's locked in some of our minds from the time I remember prob- hearing it. From time I was probably Brooks' age and up, right? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel in a sentence. And it tells me Christ can save whosoever believes. The salvation is given to whosoever believes. This system, which is very popular, and again, this is, if if you hear the word reformed doctrine, reformed doctrine or reformed Baptist, reformed Presbyterian, Reformed churches, Reformed theology. This is what is going to be professed. This is going to be at the core of what they believe about salvation. So they say the death of of Christ was sufficient for all, but effective for some. They also go on to say this. Jesus is a personal Savior, not a general one. He died specifically for those who will be saved. He did not make salvation merely possible, he accomplished it. His blood was not shed needlessly on those who reject. So again, this is taking from their writings, they say he's not a personal he's not a general savior, he's a personal one. He saved me, he saves those who have faith in him. And he died Specifically for those who will be saved. Well, you remember what we looked at last week? (coughs) There are those he has chosen to save and the rest he has chosen not to. So you begin to put two and two together. They're saying Jesus died to save those whom he chose to be saved and not those whom he didn't choose to be saved according to them. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? And really, in, in all discussions of this, or in all kind of defense of this, whether it's in their books or in their preaching, it kind of revolves around two questions. They, they always ask two main questions. and It seems to be at the very heart of, of this whole doctrine. And this goes back even to... Shortly after the time of John Calvin, um, I'm not going to quote a lot of his writings because there's not a lot in there, and I'll tell you why in a bit. Uh, but this, this seemed to really kind of blossom uh, uh, sometime after uh, he, his big book came out Institutes of the Christian Religion, and some of the things that were in there. It really kind of came out after that. These are the questions For whom did Christ die? Who did Christ die for? And what did Christ actually accomplish on the cross? That's the questions they say must be answered. Who, uh, who if he went to the cross, who did he go there for? Backup questions to that: Did he really go for the whole world? Did he go to the cross for all those who have rejected and are now in eternal judgment in hell? That's the bottom line. What they're saying. What they're asking. The second question, okay, well, if he went to the cross to die and his blood bought salvation, which that's what the book of Ephesians says, right? We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. If his blood bought salvation for mankind, what did he actually accomplish when he shed it? If there are those who reject it, you see what I'm saying? You see, see where they're kind of where their minds kind of tracking now. So they say, well, we have to answer these two kind of questions. <coughs> R.C. Sproul. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of him. It's a big one for uh, this Reformed theology. He says this, Was it the Father's intent to send His Son to die on the cross to make salvation possible for everyone? but with the possibility that His death would be effective for no one? Did God send His Son to die to make salvation possible, but with the possibility that nobody would accept, and so His death would be needless? See where they're going? See where the the mindset's at? This is John Piper. He says this. If you say that He died for every human being in the same way, if you say that Christ died on the cross for every human, every man, woman, child, in the same way, in the same capacity, cross the board, Christ died for all, then you have to define the nature of the atonement very differently than you would if you believe that Christ in some particular... um, What's another word for that? Um, Specific, special, focused. Yeah, everybody understand what he's saying here? Some particular, some special, specific way. If you believe that Christ in some particular way died for those who actually do believe. In the first case, you believe that the death of Christ did not decisively secure the salvation of anyone. It only made all men savable so that something else would be decisive in saving them, namely their choice. Namely their choice. So now we need to keep their view of total inability in mind and actually what's coming uh, in a couple of weeks, irresistible grace. Because if you remember, we are unable to save ourselves, so what they say must happen is God must move upon somebody, actually cause them to be Born again or regenerated, so that they can believe. So God does that work. He draws whom He chooses. He saves whom He chooses, and uh, that's how somebody is saved. It has nothing to do with us. They'll tell you right now. It has nothing to do with us. If you are saved, if you profess to have come to a point in your life where you realized you were a sinner and you were under the judgment of God, and you turned and you you cried out in faith to Christ to ask forgiveness of sins, to to ask Him to save you, just like many of us profess to do, they will say that was not you, that was God. God did that in you. (coughs) So they would say, Christ bought that salvation that God did in you on the cross. It wasn't up to you. It was God moving in you and it is blood-bought by Christ on the cross, for the elect. Keep in mind as well is their view of sovereignty of God, where He can just do what He wants, and He has mercy on whom He will, and hardens whom He will, so He died for those whom He chooses. So see, you see how these all begin to kind of to, to interweave together? Let's see uh, what else they have to say. This is still John Piper. He goes on to say, In that case, if you believe that Christ died for all, even those who reject, in that case, the death of Christ did not actually remove the sentence of death and did not guarantee new life for anyone. Rather, it only creates possibilities of salvation, which could be actualized by people who provide the decisive cause, namely their faith. In this understanding of the atonement, faith and repentance are not blood-bought gifts of God for particular sinners, but rather are the acts of some sinners that make the blood work for them. It's that first sentence that caught my attention. It did not actually remove the sentence of death and did not guarantee new life for anyone. So you understand, in a Calvinist view of salvation, which, by the way, we do not hold to. We do not believe that. But in a Calvinist view of salvation... um, The blood of Christ removes the sentence of death, guarantees new life for the elect, the chosen one whom God works in and saves, and it has nothing to do with us at all. Here's John MacArthur. Now, if that idea of Jesus dying for all, if that is true, then on the cross, Jesus accomplished a potential salvation, not an actual one. He really did not purchase salvation for anyone particular. He only removed some kind of barrier to make it possible for sinners to choose to be saved. He's much more sarcastic in his writings, and he's kind of getting down to that, but he's saying, if you believe that, then it's all he did was remove some kind of barrier. He didn't actually really save anybody. He just potentially put it out there. We'll be getting to Scripture. There's a couple more quotes, and we'll see, we'll see what it has to say. I think this is noble intent. I think it's wrong. But I think the intent, the, the, the idea behind this line of thinking is, is pretty good. They count the blood of Christ as precious. It is precious to them that Jesus would die to give His blood for sinners. That that blood that was shed for us as He took upon our sins is the, the cleansing, the forgiveness for our sins. They count that as precious, worth more than anything else. And we rightly should, shouldn't we? The blood is precious. The, the death of Jesus on the cross is something we should never uh, play around with or minimize. That's, that's why we have eternal life. Without that, we're nothing. We're doomed. We're lost, right? But they take it too far because they think too much, I think. They've got their theology and it, it kind of starts messing around and, and, and clouding up what is so simple. What is so simple in the Scriptures and it kind of goes too far. They say that Christ wouldn't waste His blood on somebody who rejects. He would not come, uh, take, a, take on the form of man being God, uh, Come in the flesh and and be humiliated and live like this and be beaten and be spit on and be nailed to a cross. He would not do that for somebody who would reject. He did that for those who would be saved, so his blood is 100% effective. You understand what I'm saying? His blood is 100% effective. Everybody who is going to be saved is saved. And the blood did all of its job. Nobody can reject it. It wasn't spilled waste, wastefully. It wasn't wasted. It was spilled for those who would be saved. That's the idea behind limited atonement. John MacArthur still... We're still we're used to that kind of evangelical idea that Jesus paid the sins in full, paid the price for the sins, paid the price for the sins in full of everybody. That is fraud with so many obvious problems. You you hear what he said. The idea that Jesus died for you and for me, for everyone you'll ever meet, for everyone you've ever known, for everyone who's ever walked the face of this earth. So that we might be saved. And God wants all men to be saved. If we would turn and we would repent, we would place our faith on Him. And that is for all men, all women, all children, everyone, everywhere. He says that is fraud. This is where I split and I say no. This is absolute heresy to me. That is not fraud. That is Scripture. The Bible is clear. Jesus came to die for us. For all men, and God wants all men to repent, all men, women, all of mankind to repent. (coughs) And the cross purchases salvation for all of us. It's up to us to believe, and we'll get to that in a minute. But they say that that is fraud, right there, that is fraud with so many obvious problems. And he goes on, but that's what the evangelical church believes, and that's why it uses manipulation to move people emotionally and according to their felt needs and whatever other means they might come up with. Believing that the penalty is paid in full for everybody so that most of the people that Jesus died for are in hell. Then what in the world kind of atonement did he provide for them? I get what he's thinking. I understand where He's coming from. The blood of Christ is so precious. Most people in the world, are they saved? Yes or no? They reject, don't they? Yet the sacrifice for their sins has been provided in Christ. Anyone who believes, whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what the Bible says, John 3.16. The debt has been paid, but yet... They will not accept. So they say Christ wouldn't waste his blood for those who accept. So he died only for those who do. Still, John MacArthur, God did not intend to save everyone. He is God. He could have intended to save everyone, he could have saved everyone. He would have if that was his intention. The atonement is limited. Why? Because he didn't save everybody. So they're going to use reverse reasoning, which we'll get to, we should get to that, to when we say what we believe, they're going to say we believe something else, okay? I am trying not to do that. I don't, want to, I don't want to use these lessons to paint a straw man picture or like, oh, these are evil people. No, I don't, I don't think so. But this is the theology. This is their quotes, their teachers. I, I told you I had a John MacArthur study Bible. I didn't bring it. Comment, commentary on the Scriptures. You open to a Scripture and his commentary will tell you something like that. There's people buying these things in Bible bookstores to get that idea when that's not what the Bible says. I just want to provide this is a clear picture. This is out there. This is what they are saying. Here is what the Bible says and here is what we are saying. Okay? This is the one that does it for me, too. Still John MacArthur. Jesus on the cross offered an atonement for those in Israel who would repent and believe and those throughout the world who would repent and believe. It is not a universal appeasement of God. Listen now. Jesus didn't pay for the sins of Judas because when Judas died, he went to his own place to pay for his own sins. Jesus didn't die to pay for the sins of Herod. Jesus didn't die to pay for the sins of Pilate. Jesus didn't pay for the sins of Adolf Hitler. Jesus didn't pay for the sins of the mob that screamed for his blood. Jesus didn't pay (coughs) for the sins of all that mass of humanity that show up at the great white throne and are cast into the lake of fire forever and ever where they will give their satisfaction to the offended law of God. Jesus did not die for those who are lost. For those who reject, excuse me. He did not die for them. He did not pay for their sins. Why R.C. Sproul puts it best. From eternity, God wills that only the elect should receive the benefits of the atonement. It is only the elect who receive forgiveness of sins, who receive eternal life, um, all that comes with what was done on the cross. I think that's a pretty clear picture Anybody got any questions? You all seem, you've all got that <laughs> face of really? Did, really, this is what they believe? Yes, they, He needed to die to pay for the sins, to give His blood to be the sacrifice, yes. But He only did that for those who are elect. Here's the, kind of the main idea, we've already hinted at it. The main idea that is, if Christ died to atone for sinners, His death is so effectual, so complete, if He died for all, then all would go to heaven. Why? Because his blood is that powerful, it's that cleansing, and if Christ died for all men, everybody would be going. But they don't. Not everybody believes. Some hear the gospel message, and they reject, and they say no. So he must have, because everybody doesn't believe, and not everybody goes to heaven, he must have died only for those who will believe. And any other idea that Christ died for everybody, they say, is universalism. Anybody heard of that before? Universalism, that is the idea that everybody goes to heaven. We've used it in conjunction with some other things, but the the technical belief of universalism is that when we all die, we all go to heaven. That's where, like, oh, there's all, was it all roads? All roads lead to the same place? Is that the phrase? Whatever people use. We're all yeah, stuff like that. Like it's all you could be a Buddhist and you could be a monk and you can be a, a Muslim and I'll be a Baptist and it's all good. We're all serving the same God. Well, I'll go there in the end. We all, everybody goes to heaven when we die. That's universalism, and that's what they say we believe when we say Christ died for all. Well, clearly not everybody goes to heaven, right? Clearly, as Scripture says, there is judgment for sin. We are guilty before God. The wages of sin is what? Death. Not just death here, but eternal death, eternal separation. And that great white throne, (coughs) the John MacArthur reference, that's in Revelation chapter 20, where all of humanity stands before him and those who are not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Not everybody goes to heaven. But just because I say Christ died for all men, that doesn't mean I believe everybody goes to heaven. No, there's some things the Scripture says, some things um, that the Scripture requires of us, faith and repentance. Clear enough, I hope, by their statements, I think you get an idea. So we're coming to a close. Let's, Let's look at some Scripture from their point of view to see what they say. So turn to Isaiah 53, if you would. Isaiah 53. Notice as we go, some of the, I think they're called pronouns. I'm not that good with language. I've been out of school for 20 years, and I only have to remember it if I do homework. So, with my kids, so I might be a little off. But uh, notice some of these descriptors that they use, and they're going to read it a certain way. Isaiah 53:1. Who hath believed our report? To whom of the arm of the Lord? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Of course, we know who this is talking about. This is talking about Jesus. Written long before he was born, long before he came along. It's a prophecy of what Christ would do. He did exactly this, what it says. Verse 4, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. <coughs> but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we, were he- we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. I would read that. I would preach that and say, that's you. That's you. That's me. That's anybody who hears it. The our Transgressions, our iniquities. Us is you and me and everybody who can hear it. And they would say, No. That's the elect. It's our griefs, our burdens, our sins that has been laid on him, not everybody's. No, just the chosen ones. Everybody else? No, you're still in your sins, and you've got no hope. But Jesus bore our sins. Remember, you've never met a Calvinist who's not a part of the elect. Remember, their message is God chose me, but he really would never choose you. <laughs> That's not the message of the Bible. Well, uh, I'm assuming since the what's basis for Just because he wrote scripture. Because he talks about um, God the way that he does. That's a question I think I should have answered. How do you know that you're elect? If you love God, if, if you um, feel anything when it comes to God, if you read the Scripture and it moves you, or if you've had an experience of salvation, if the, if the Word of God, anything about God touches your heart, then you are part of the elect. You have been awakened by God. They say, how do you know that you're alive? Because you breathe and you eat and all that. Well, if, if you're doing that spiritually, then you're part of the elect. Then you maybe never were. And you got fooled into an emotional thing. <laughs> we'll get to that in a couple weeks. I want to fast forward because we're running out of uh, time. Verse 11. Isaiah 53 and 11. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. He's going to look back on the work that he did on the cross and say, yep, I did all that I came to do. He puts this, they will put this verse in line when, when Jesus is praying in John 17 and he says, Father, all that you've given to me I've kept, except the one, I've kept them. And they will immediately apply that to salvation. All that you gave me I've saved. A, he's going to look and see and will be satisfied that he did exactly what he came to do. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. I would read that and say, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people saved because of the cross. Across all time. For however long the Lord tarries His coming, people are going to hear the gospel. They're going to hear this word preached. It's going to touch their heart. They're going to bow before Him and ask for forgiveness, ask Him to save. People are going to be saved. And yes, He will justify, declare righteous them, right? But that offer goes to all of man (laughs) because all of man's Iniquities was laid on him. It's not just a group; it's for all. But they will read it into to to, to just this specific group. Okay, First Peter two twenty four. Let me read you that. This is actually kind of a quote, quoting from Isaiah fifty three. If we had more time, we could match it up. But Peter writes this in his epistle. He says, "Who." His own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Not ye might be healed, you were healed. You see how they're going to kind of narrow down the scope of some of these words? Let's go to the book of John. We'll take a quick walk through a couple of verses. Any questions? You all tracking with me? Okay. John chapter 10 and verse 11. This is a big one for them. I am the good shepherd. Jesus speaking here to his disciples. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Verse 14 I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I am known of mine as the Father knoweth me even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. The other sheep I have which are not of this fold them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Verse 25 Jesus answered them I told you and ye believe not the works that I do in my Father's name they bear witness of me but ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep As I said unto you, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give unto them eternal life, that they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. My Father, which gave them Me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of My hand. I and My Father are one. You see where if they miss some things about Scripture, they're going to say Jesus died for His sheep, Jesus died for His elect for those who will be saved and no one else. And my sheep hear, and they know my voice, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and you don't believe because you're not part of the sheep. So they're going to use verses like that. By the way, Jesus is talking about those who continue to follow Him. He's talking about His body, His church. These people are part of my flock because they're following me. And the others who were not following, the others who were blaspheming him, says you don't get it, you're not following because you, you won't be faithful, you won't submit yourselves, you won't let go of your own pride and follow me. They hear my voice, they follow me because they're part of my sheep. But they say this is applying to salvation. Ephesians uh, 5.23, let's go there. Running out of time. I'm going to kind of speed up just a little bit. I think you get a sense of what's going on, okay? This was new to me in my study. The others I've heard many times. This one was new to me. Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, So let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husband, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You understand their meaning of the church as we looked at that that's all the saved everywhere? Christ gave Himself for that specific group of people to be saved. And so it dictates the meaning of chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, in whom we have redemption through His blood. They say Christ only died for some people. They use some of these scriptures like that to support. Christ did not die for everybody. He only died for some people. We don't have time to go there. Anytime us or we or they or our is mentioned in Scripture, they apply a limited scope to the death of Jesus on the cross. Jesus didn't die for everybody who's ever going to be born. Jesus didn't die for all of mankind. He he died for a very specific and small group of people. Again, I get the intention behind it. (coughs) A very high view of the cross, which again, we should have. But, it is in absolute and direct and clear opposition to clear, easily understood, straightforward verses in the Bible. Can anybody think of one? John 3.16 There's one specifically. You're all going to know it when we turn there. Well, I was hoping you'd be a little bit sharper. And... How about this one? First John 2.2 2. Turn there. <laughs> A little slower. <coughs> I like it when the Bible's clear. When I don't have to try to dance around anything and I don't have to try to explain it. I can just let the Bible speak. And when it comes to limited atonement, there is only one place in the Bible I need to turn. And it is this verse right here. And it's case closed. First John Let's start in verse 1, chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. And if any man sin, how many? If certain people sin, three letters, any. I'd circle that, put an arrow at it. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation, which means it's the sacrifice that take, takes care of everything. It's the one that satisfies. It's the one that does the job. Big word, simple meaning. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I don't really need to say anything else. I could shut this off and we could walk out of here and say that's wrong. Limited atonement is wrong. Why? The Bible says He is the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Period. Oh, they'll, they'll explain it away, though. I like when they got to squirm. And when, when these guys who are so eloquent and they can stand in pulpits and say, the idea that Christ died for all is a fraud with obvious whatever He said. I don't know. <laughs> really? Well, how do you answer this verse? Let me read you this because they'll go here. You can turn there if you want. I, I put this in there because all of the responses to this verse go to, to 1 John 2, 2, go to this verse here. John 11, 51 says this. This is when Jesus is brought before the high priest and the high priest says something. He says, this spake he not of himself. Let's talk about the high priest. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only, but that he also should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So they say, well, well, let me just see. John Piper says this when he says the whole world. I think that what he means by the whole world is that, namely as a gospel spreads around the whole world, the whole world becomes the object of his saving work. And he gathers the children of God from every tribe and tongue. So it really means he's a propitiation for the elect of the, the sins of the elect of the whole world. Just like when Caiaphas was saying that and he said that one man should die and it was, he's going to gather together all the children of God. Well, that's what this one means. He really didn't mean when the Holy Spirit moved upon John the Apostle to write, oh yeah, by the way, In case they got a question, you know, he's the propitiation for our sins. I know he's the sacrifice for my sins. I believed on him. I trusted him for my salvation (coughs) It's pretty close to 30 years ago. This month, actually. I know that my sins are washed away by his blood. He died for me. I know that personally. And as the Holy Spirit moves, he says, well, just in case anybody's got a second question, he said, not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. (laughs) Super simple writing, but they're going to try to explain it away. I'm actually going to go with Calvin and his commentary on the verse. I'm not going to go with John Piper or MacArthur. Here's what Calvin says. John Calvin. Calvinism comes from John Calvin. Calvin says this, he holds out his propitiation to the whole world. Calvin did not believe in limited atonement. Today Calvinists are more Calvinists are more Calvinist than Calvin. Calvin didn't believe this. Plain and simple. Second Peter three nine I am out of time. Second Peter three nine. You can turn there if you want. You know this verse, I, it's just, I'm blanking on it because I'm in a hurry. 2 Peter 3, nine. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. <laughs> Another pretty clear verse, right? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And He provided for that on the cross. Well, they're going to explain that away. Sproul, R.C. Sproul says, The immediate antecedent, what comes before, of the word any in this passage is the word us. He is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. So he says, I think it's perfectly clear that Peter is saying that God is not willing that any of us, the elect, should perish. But that all of us, the elect, should come to repentance. That's not what the Bible's saying. The Bible is written in plain, clear language. God wants all men to be saved. God is not willing that any should perish. And there is a lot of, I think, when it comes to explaining some of these things. I think the scriptures pretty clear. We don't have time. Let me see if I can read you, these to you, because I I don't want to just say, "Well, yeah, I take my word for it." Here's what Jesus says: John three sixteen. We know. John four forty two. He said to the woman, "Now you believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and we know indeed that this is the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Savior of the world." John six thirty three. For the bread of God is he which cometh down to heaven and giveth life unto the world. John six fifty one. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. That's from Jesus' own mouth. Time after time, the Bible says that. Jesus himself says that. He came to die for all men. All men. Oh. <coughs> Is that, well, that yes? Please read that. that bit, uh, Behold, the Lamb of God. Yeah, see, that's the one I, I really should have read. John one twenty nine, right? Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. Second Corinthians chapter five. I should know this. I quote this all the time. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and had committed us unto us the word of reconciliation. Hebrews two nine. He has tath- tasted of death for every man. That's what Hebrews chapter two says. I think it's pretty clear. I think we here tonight understand. Jesus gave His life for all. 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 Not a select group. Jesus died for us so that we might be saved. Not all are saved. I know that. Not all accept. But the sacrifice has been paid for their sins. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we would simply accept. We would simply accept. Here's how I would put my view of the atonement the death of Jesus on the cross, the atoning death of Christ has paid the debt of sin. Any and all who believe in Him are forgiven and cleansed by His work on the cross. Not everyone does, but God has provided the way for everyone to be saved from sin and offers that way to the world. The atonement has been fully and finally provided. The only thing that limits it is whether or not an individual accepts or rejects the drawing of the Holy Spirit to this provision. I think they limit the death of Christ and His power. I believe He took on the sins of the whole world. I believe He bore the wrath of God for all sin when He was on that cross. Those who accept in faith and those who reject. The atonement was done. It has been provided. Whether or not we accept it, well, that's a different story, isn't it? But it was accomplished, completed by Christ. Next time, we will look at irresistible grace.